to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is an industry update, what financial advisors need to know about growing through recruitment and M&A. It's a conversation with my partner, Lewis Diamond. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or are simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. One of the major motivations for advisors who choose independence is the desire to build an enterprise through recruitment of other advisors and or M&A. And even for those non-enterprise builders, the option to selectively deepen their bench via recruitment and having the ultimate flexibility over who to hire is appealing. While wirehouse advisors can grow via acquisition through their firm's sunset programs and selectively adding team members through their firm's training programs, at the end of the day, advisors still do not truly own their clients and are limited in how to structure deals and who they're able to target. Although M&A continues to set records across the industry, and we are in the midst of one of the most active recruitment times in years, it's still a highly competitive process to successfully execute an inorganic growth transaction. So if you're interested in building your business through inorganic growth, here's what you need to know before embarking on this journey. Lewis joins me to break down the facts. Lewis, as always, I appreciate your expertise. Absolutely. This is always a fun time to exchange ideas. Okay, so a lot to talk about. Let's jump into it. Number one, why is recruitment and acquisition so appealing to advisors? I guess put another way, what's the real power of M&A? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's not just wirehouse advisors that are interested in recruiting advisors with books of business or mergers and acquisitions. Um, the obvious reason is financial, why so many folks are interested in acquiring. The term that comes to mind is operating leverage. If someone's running an independent business, operating leverage means that they can keep their fixed costs relatively consistent as they add each incremental dollar of revenue. So by doing so, the business becomes much more profitable. This is compared to a wirehouse environment where the firm keeps the operating leverage. Another reason folks are interested in M&A is because of the concept of a rising tide lifting all boats. Let's say I'm a $500 million firm. Maybe my business would sell for eight to nine times earnings, but now I buy a practice, a smaller practice for six times earnings and merge it in. Now, all of a sudden, when the business sells together, maybe I get a 10x multiple and I've made up the difference too in what I paid initially versus the valuation now. A third reason why M&A is appealing is the ability to grow a bench of next generation talent. 
So whether it's to create your own internal succession plan or just to add some capacity to your firm, it's a really interesting way to not just bolster the number of young folks in the firm, but many times the caliber and even an expertise. So maybe a firm acquires or recruits to add a credible portfolio manager, or maybe they want to get into a new niche market. And this is a nice way to grow your team, both through recruitment and acquisition. And then finally, I would say is just the sharing of expenses. This is probably more so on the recruiting side, but being able to distribute expenses to multiple folks, having a couple of different advisors share in real estate costs and maybe sharing assistance and technology is a nice way for everyone to win by gaining skill together. But do you think that every breakaway, so that is every advisor that's coming from a captive environment that chooses to be independent, is every one of them interested in inorganic growth, what we define as recruiting and, and acquisition? Definitely not everyone, but at the same time, I would say most are at least open to it. Acquiring is taking on more risk than recruiting an advisor because it means putting either your hard-earned equity into a transaction or writing a pretty meaningful check. So that may not be for everyone, but really most firms are at least open to the idea of recruiting advisors, at least ones with books of business. So it's not a requirement for independent advisors to recruit or acquire, but at some point, every firm needs to solve for succession, and most firms are looking to grow, and growing inorganically via recruitment or acquisition is one of the more efficient ways to do so. You know, it reminds me of a story. About a decade ago, I worked with a team that was in Colorado that was leaving UBS and considering independence. And originally, when they first came to me, they were pretty sure they wanted to get a big deal by moving from one major firm to another. So the leap to independence itself was a big leap. When we began to talk about the power of inorganic growth of recruiting or acquisition, their first response was, no way, we've got more than enough than we can handle. We have no interest in that. That's a bridge too far. But when they began to see the numbers and how, as they increased margins and operating leverage, how that had an impact not only on profitability, but on the overall valuation, that completely turned their head. And in the last decade, they've probably done five or six different acquisitions. Yeah. Great story. I, I agree. Yeah. So let me ask you another question. How specifically is the opportunity to recruit and acquire different as an independent than at a captive wirehouse or broker dealer? Yeah, that's a great question because it is true. And you mentioned it in your, in your introduction that advisors at a wirehouse or at a broker dealer are able to, in essence, acquire a book of business, typically via their firm's preset sunset programs. The real difference though, I'll give you a couple of examples, is number one, if you're an independent and you're embarking on an inorganic growth journey, you're not beholden to just the advisors that are either within your market or already on your platform. So you can expand to really any RIA firm that's across multiple custodians since RIAs can add different custodians relatively easily. And it means that the advisors wouldn't have to repaper either, which is a really important fact. You can also look to bring on advisors from other RIA firms. You can look to acquire an independent practice from a broker dealer. And you can even bring on someone from either your old firm or from another captive W-2 model. So by being able to fish in more ponds, you're able to maximize the number of at-bats you get and also be able to grow more of a national firm if that's what you want to do. 
another big difference is, and this is probably the most important, is having complete flexibility with how to structure deals and be able to structure deals that really match someone's goals. The Wirehouse Sunset programs, whether it's the Merrill Lynch, CTP, UBS Alpha, Morgan Stanley FAP, or Wells Fargo Summit, they're really good ways for both sides, a retiring advisor to monetize their practice and get paid for their life's work, and also for an inheriting advisor to pretty efficiently take over a meaningful book of business. The downside, though, is it's a preset structure. An advisor who enters this program, there might be one or two choices, but they're likely going to be out within a set period of time. They're selling for a set multiple, and they're very restricted in what they can do before, after, and during the transaction. You compare this to an independent that can, can really structure the deal any way they want to. They can pay an advisor over a 10-year period. An advisor can sell part of their business now. An advisor can stay on as chairman after a deal. They can keep some equity. They can stay on as a consultant. There's a lot of different ways that this can happen. And because of it, you can maximize the chances of coming to an equi equitable deal for both buyer and seller. And then I would say the last part is in the M&A world as an independent, the buyer, so to say the next gen advisor, isn't going to be locked up captive to one platform for a minimum of five years like they are in a W-2 construct. So overall, it's just a lot more freedom and flexibility with who to go after and where they're coming from, with how to structure deals and ultimately with not being locked up. And with more choice comes a higher degree of probability of succeeding and accomplishing one's inorganic growth goals. All right. So that sounds good, but I absolutely agree with everything you said. And one of the trends we're seeing a lot, you and I agree on, is the people driving the bus in advisor movement these days is a lot coming from the younger generation who looks at these wirehouse sunset programs and say, yeah, it's great for the senior advisor. And sure, it's a good way for me to inherit a book of business. But at the end of the day, I'm signing my life away or I'm tying myself up for the next seven to nine years. So... How would a senior advisor recreate a Wirehouse Sunset program as an independent? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. It's something we get asked a lot too, because right now what we're seeing is many teams across the Wirehouse world and in the industry have the multiple generations that are at different stages of their careers. So you might have a senior advisor who is considering their firm's retirement program and is pretty close to the end. And you have a younger advisor who wants to take over that book because it's hard-earned and it's a really good way to grow the business, but he or she really wants to go independent. So we've actually helped a number of our clients recreate a sunset program, but as an independent. Like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot more flexibility though with how to structure it, at least for now too, to be able to get capital gains treatment for the sale of that business versus ordinary income can be pretty powerful and making it better for both buyer and seller. But as an example, let's take a, an example wirehouse sunset program, which might be a five-year payout. Let's say it's a 200% or two times revenue deal. As an independent, you can very easily recreate the same thing. But let's say the advisor wants to get paid in three years. You can do that and you can take on debt as the buyer um, or just take a lower payout for a longer period of time. Or maybe the buyer wants to stretch out payments over 10 years because they want to make sure the assets stay and that the, the retiring advisor is still motivated to keep clients around. You can do that as well. If anyone wants to reach out, we can share financial models we've created. We've actually done it for a couple larger scale clients, and they've very successfully been able to 
convince their soon-to-be-retiring partner that not only would they be able to recreate their sunset program from their firm, but do it in a more tax-advantaged way and actually be able to get more money in the end and get the benefit of being independent. So there really is a way to create a win-win, but it still requires the soon-to-be-retiring advisor to be open to taking on the risk of a move. And of course, it has to be the right time to make a move because no move is easy and it's not for the faint of heart. How does a next-gen inheritor who has interest in independence, what are some of the talking points? How does that next-gen inheritor convince, and and I hate the word convince because it sounds like they're selling or forcing them into something, but how do they make the case that independence might be better for the business overall, for the next-gen, but also for the senior advisor? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you're right. You can't convince because I agree you can't sell someone on it. I think one of the biggest things is the first generation advisor has to have a belief and a pretty strong belief that their current firm isn't the best place for their clients, for the business, or for their team members. If the advisor is relatively happy, then no matter how compelling the opportunity might be elsewhere, it doesn't make sense for them. And it's easier for them to just simplify their life and not have to worry about a transition. But I think if there's a fundamental belief that the advisor isn't able to serve their clients correctly, or it's not the right legacy for their clients, then a next-gen advisor can help to show a soon-to-be-retiring advisor just about the benefits of independence, that they'll be able to serve the clients with a lot more flexibility, to be able to customize technology to not just their, their clients' needs, but also their clients' kids' needs, that they can create a brand that this advisor has input in, And it's going to be a brand and an image and a firm that outlives the advisor. It's not just going to be gobbled up into new business and be no trace of that advisor into the future. And I think another way to do it is, of course, financially, is you want to create a financial structure that's at least equivalent. I think it has to be better for the retiring advisor than the Sunset Program, because what you're asking is for this advisor to take a risk in transitioning and to take on a bunch of extra work at a time where they probably want to slow down. and and take it easy. So I think, again, you can't convince someone who's happy that they should do it. But if an advisor has a belief that it's not the right place, there's a lot of good that that can be shown. But let me ask you a question, though, because we've worked with a number of teams like this. Do you think a team that has a family dynamic, either father, son, father, daughter, mother, son, et cetera, that those teams are better fits to go independent and, and kind of do this structure? Or are other teams better geared for that? I think it it all depends upon the team and it all depends upon the motivations and how all constituents, all stakeholders want to live their business life. The reality is, though, for the right family teams, for the right multi-generational family teams, it's the ideal scenario because presumably there's a level of trust Presumably, there's a level of familiarity and camaraderie and synergy, if you will. So they've got sort of, it's not just a team that was put together by spit and glue, but it's a team that really belongs together and everybody rowing in the right direction. And if in these multi-generational teams, I think the key, even going back to the question I just asked you, is what you see more often than not obviously, is a parent 
or a family member that really, really is really vested in the success, not just of, in the business, but in their child, in their prodigy, in their next generation. And when they really, really, really care about the success of the next generation, they're much more likely to be open to the notion of what's best for the business, not just what's best for me. And that's the key, you know, but I think you hit it on the head, Lewis, that the, it has to make sense. A senior advisor is not going to be willing to walk away from an easy way to monetize his life's work in place if he's perfectly happy with the status quo. It has to come from a level of either enthusiasm about being able to do something that he or she can't where he or she is, or in frustrations with the status quo and really wanting to do something different. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And there's plenty of teams also where they may not be blood relatives, but the advisors, they, they, they look to each other as family. And there's just a higher degree of trust and more of, of a care that the next generation is going to be in the best possible place. So it doesn't have to be a family member team, but certainly when you have a family dynamic, it does make it more likely that G1 is going to be more likely and more willing to want to go independent if they deem that to be the best possible option for their child um, and for the rest of the team. Yeah, agree completely. So let me ask you another question. It's obviously a very competitive market. In fact, we call it a seller's market where there's an enormous amount of competition for top talent. And every firm considers themselves a buyer. So ultimately, what are valuations and deal structures and recruitment packages? What do they look like? And why is it so competitive? Like, who is the competition? Yeah, really good question. This is going to be a bit of a longer answer because there's a lot to unpack there. As far as the competition, it is relatively fierce. On the M&A side, you have private equity firms more and more coming into the space every day because they, they view the really appealing characteristics of the independent wealth model and its recurring revenue. But then you also have private equity firms that have invested in a platform or a really a national firm that is now going to use that capital to go out and roll up other RIAs. And these firms are fierce competitors. They have a ton of capital behind them. They have scale, they're experienced deal makers, and they're formidable competitors. On the other hand, you also have, you still have large national RIAs or even local ones that are a couple billion under management maybe. They might still be private, but these firms can put forth a pretty compelling value proposition to a seller or to a, um, to a prospective recruit because they have the scale to have a number of new services that maybe your smaller firm can't access. So maybe they have tax prep under one roof and estate planning attorneys and many of other things that it's just very expensive to afford on your own. Another potential competitor is a firm that can just write a big check on the recruitment side. So maybe it's more of a traditional wirehouse or W-2 model. Maybe it's a broker dealer like an LPL or a Commonwealth or an Ameriprise who can write a pretty competitive forgivable loan to an advisor to come over. So lots and lots and lots of competition from folks that likely have a little bit more capital and more experience in doing this than you do. Doesn't mean that it's not possible. You just have to be that much better in your process, in what your value proposition is, in your execution, knowing that you have to be pretty flawless in order to make this happen. On the structure side, that's, that's the other part of the question. M&A deals are usually structured as a multiple of EBITDA or free cash flow. 
very different than a multiple of top line revenue, like you see in traditional recruitment deals. That's how most legitimate buyers would value a business. The multiples really do depend upon the size of the business, what its organic growth rate is, absent market appreciation. Um, it could be the depth of the team, the services, even the market that the business is in. And I would say the multiples range anywhere from maybe three to four times on, on the, the low end up to 10, 12, even 15 times earnings on the high end. I believe United Capital sold to Goldman Sachs for 17 times earnings. So that's the ultimate aspirational deal, but most will be in the mid-range. Some firms would acquire in a multiple of revenue, sometimes for, I would say, more streamlined businesses, more of just a book of business, single advisor without any real expenses. A multiple of revenue might be useful, but almost always it's going to be a multiple of EBITDA or free cash flow. And then on the recruitment side, recruitment packages can really vary. And if you're independent, you have a couple of different ways you can bring an advisor into your firm. Maybe you bring them in as an independent contractor. You could bring them in as an employee. You could buy their business. So depending upon that dynamic, the package might be different. We do believe that any firm that wants to be competitive in recruiting advisors with books of business, they should offer some level of upfront capital. It's not necessarily a requirement but it will make you stand out because most RIA firms aren't going to be in a position to offer an upfront deal. So we think that's, it's, a, it's a helpful tool. Even offering something in the range of 20 to 50% of trailing 12 can really make you stand out from a crowded field. And then you have other levers you can play with like payout and expense sharing and even equity as part of the deal structure. So it raises a lot of questions. The first is, how does a smaller independent firm compete? Is it that who, who either can offer significant transition money or just really shouldn't, is in a position to do so? How do they compete in this crowded field? Yeah. So the answer is oftentimes they really won't compete. There's going to be a ton of advisors who you probably just shouldn't even compete for because what they're looking for is very different than what you can offer. Even if you have the willingness to write a big check, you still may not win versus some of these mega firms. But I promise you, don't get discouraged. It's still very possible to grow meaningfully through recruitment and acquisition. But what you'll have to do is first, I think, be very clear about what types of advisors are going to be the best fit within your firm. And be really honest. If you're a $200 million firm, even though, of course, you want a $500 million advisor to join you, it's probably not going not to happen. So be realistic about the, the size and the caliber and the type of advisor or team that might join you, because that'll save you some unnecessary conversations. From there, let's say you've honed in on who your ideal target is. You have to get really good at telling your story, having a truly unique value proposition that's going to stand out from all these different firms that might be bidding for the same advisor or the same deal and customize that value proposition to what an advisor is most looking for. So let's say it's an advisor who's 42 years old and is really eager to grow. Instead of talking about your succession planning capabilities or the fact you have a great culture, instead, I would focus more on the unique ways you're going to help that advisor grow. Maybe you have access to custodial referral programs, or you have a large center of influence referral network, or you have a really good digital marketing capability, or you're looking to hand off relationships to that advisor so they can manage it. If you're really clear on that and you can customize it, then even as a smaller boutique firm, 
you can be more responsive to an advisor's needs than some of these larger firms that could be a little bit one size fits all. So to me, that's the best way to stand out is be realistic about who you're targeting. And then if you get that at bat, be really good at telling your story, but in a different way each time, depending upon what an advisor wants and needs. Yeah. And I think we counsel all of our clients who want to engage in inorganic growth, that it all starts with the acronym WIFM, what's in it for me, that when you are lucky enough to be sitting in front of a prospect, the best way to determine what's important to that prospect is to ask a bunch of questions. What motivates you? So in your example, we're presuming it's about growth, but maybe it's about something else. And the more questions you ask, the more you're able to customize your value proposition to meet the needs, to answer the question, what's in it for me if I join you? And isn't it possible, Lewis, that the fact of the matter is there are plenty of people, plenty of advisors that would much prefer to work for a small firm than a mega firm. That's absolutely true as well. It's a, it's a, it's a good additional point. There are many advisors would prefer that. And it could also be equity is a meaningful currency that a larger firm isn't going to want to put forth. And also control. So control is a, is a major thing. If an advisor joins or sells to a larger national organization, they're likely giving up a high degree of control and autonomy versus maybe if they merge with you, they'll truly be a partner in the firm, have a seat at the table, and they'll have a meaningful amount of equity in the organization versus it being more about the cash. So again, coming back to what that advisor values and to your point, asking the right questions, that can really help you target the right people and still have success, even though it's a really competitive time right now. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you about equity. You just mentioned it. So to what extent is equity or can equity be a valuable currency? I think it's it's incredibly valuable. Not everyone is going to be as excited about equity as others. Usually an advisor who's at or near retirement would likely value cash and more of the, the sure thing of cash in a deal than equity. But certainly for those who are younger and looking to grow, or even advisors who just, they're really bullish on the industry and on this and on your firm's value proposition, equity can be a game changer. The downside of equity is it's illiquid until there's a liquidity event. Sometimes it's a little bit opaque how it's valued and you are taking risk. Cash is always king, but for those who are willing to take a little bit of a risk on the future of the industry and betting that businesses will continue to still be really valuable and that joining together our combined equity is going to be more valuable than mine as a standalone independent, it can be really powerful. And I would encourage folks to use equity wisely because you can't, uh, you can't create more of it. So be very careful about who you give it to and when, because you can't really get it back. But I wouldn't be stingy about it either. If you have the right opportunity in front of you, someone who you really want to bring in, if equity is what it's going to take to get them, then I think it's better to have a smaller piece of a larger, more valuable pie rather than keep the whole pie to yourself. You know, you and I are representing right now a late 60s year old advisor who you would think would want all cash in a deal. Yet this advisor is jazzed by the notion of equity. And what gets him jazzed about it is that the firm that he's looking at, the independent firm that he and his team are looking at, has done an exceptionally good job of painting the picture of how that equity is valued. In other words, how they arrived at the valuation, how the firm is growing, what the equity could be worth, 
what they see as the end game or who the buyer for that equity will be and the different opportunities or ways for the advisor and team to monetize that equity. And it essentially, they connected the dots for this team to show them that in fact, equity in this case is more valuable than cash. Yep, absolutely. I think that's a very good example. Yeah. Okay. So are there different ways or structures for a firm to recruit advisors to their firms? Yeah. And that's the beauty of being independent. If you're going to try to recruit advisors to your team in more of a captive model, you don't really have many options of how to do it. The only mechanism you have to play with is your revenue splits. You're still beholden to your firm's compensation plan and their payouts and even ways to to structure your team. But on the independent side, you probably have four or five different ways at a high level that you can recruit someone. And it's really up to you, I think, first to decide what's the strategy of your firm and what's the vision. Because once you kind of begin going down the path of bringing folks in one way, it's a little bit hard to back out of it. So I'll give you kind of the high level ways to think about recruiting advisors to your firm, but it's more important to recruit people that are the right fit under the right structure rather than just accumulating assets. So one way to recruit an advisor is just bring them on as a W-2 employee. Maybe just give them a slightly higher payout than they had at their current firm, but these are folks that are going to value the fact that they can be independent with you. They don't have to build a business. They can tap into your infrastructure and they don't have to go through the brain damage of building a company. But a traditional W-2 construct likely won't appeal to the all. So you also have the ability to bring advisors on as 1099 independent contractors and let them, in essence, rent the platform. Maybe you share some expenses, but you charge them for rent. They're paying for their own staff, but they're paying you an, an override to access your platform, to access your resources, and to not have to build something from scratch. That's a very appealing option for many because they can still own their own business. Another way is to buy a portion or buy all of someone's business because they're looking to retire. Or maybe you're just looking, they're looking for a monetization event and they want to be aligned with a partner. So you can buy 10, 15, 20, 50% of the business now and still let them um, own and control some of their equity. And then I would say the last way is to make it more of an equity transaction is merge the businesses together and create one entity. So instead of giving cash to this advisor, they become K1 partners. So a lot of different ways as an independent to structure it, but again, comes back to what you're looking to solve for and listening to what a potential recruit's looking for, because most of these models aren't going to work for each recruit. They're probably looking for one thing in particular. And if you can be nimble without really compromising the integrity of your firm, that gives you the best possible chance at winning. Yeah, I love that. I think that it is nimbleness, the ability to be nimble, that is probably most appealing or most refreshing for advisors as they're leaving the captive environment and looking at independence. But so let me ask you a question. How can advisors or firms, nascent firms, begin to see deal flow or put another way? How should advisors think about getting at that? Yeah, that's one of the harder things. I know we get probably 15 calls a week from firms of various shapes and sizes that are looking for lead flow. They're, they're looking for us to help them grow inorganically. So, but it's, it's hard. There's obviously a finite population of advisors, especially quality advisors. And like with most things, we would encourage every firm to not wait for the phone to ring 
from a recruiter or a consultant or an investment banker or a COI referral source, but to take matters into their own hands. So for those that have identified inorganic growth as being a really important and appealing attribute for their firm, they should really be on the offensive. So a couple of different ways to do this. I would say one is working through your custodian or your broker dealer's business development team. Tell them what you're looking for in a very specific way so that if they come across someone that's a fit, they can let you know. It's usually their preference to help their current firms. It's less work for them, and they'd rather build one larger firm than have a couple of smaller ones. That's a great way. Second, I would say, is use your network. Is talk to advisors that were at your old firm or that you know. Explain what you're doing. See if it might be a fit. See if they have friends of friends who could be interested. I would say third is wholesalers. Wholesalers interact with all the same folks that you might want to go for. I mean, wholesalers want to help you. So I would definitely talk to wholesalers, explain what you're looking for. Fourth would likely be just going on LinkedIn or subscribing to a research provider and just doing cold reach outs. Hit people up on LinkedIn via one of their different platforms. Come up with a good email to target people. Even get your, get your hands dirty and cold call. A lot of different ways to do it. The last way I would say, though, and this one is, is a big decision, is for firms that are really interested in growing through M&A especially and have struck out in the past, either because they've gotten to the altar and just haven't had a competitive deal structure, or maybe they're not seeing the flow that they're looking for. Another option is to merge or align with a strategic partner. So maybe you sell a portion of your business to a private equity firm or to a family office or to an investor, and then let them become your in-house investment banker and let them be your deal team. Another way would be to merge with a firm that's not really in your market and then use that firm's capabilities and value proposition and capital to then go out and do sub-acquisitions for yourself. So depending upon how important it is for you, we might decide how much time and how much you're willing to give up to make this happen. But short story is, if it's important, then do whatever you need to to accomplish that goal. And don't wait for it to just happen and fall into your lap. And, you know, I'd add one other way to do it. You and I are going to be doing an episode coming up shortly, probably in the next month or so, about content marketing. And content marketing, digital marketing, has been an extraordinary growth engine for our business. And we are going to share some of our secret sauce or behind-the-scenes ideas. And it is a great way of not only growing a client base, but letting the advisor population know that you are open for business and a firm worth considering. One last question, Lewis. Do you think that going independent would be worth it financially, even if a firm would be ultimately unsuccessful in recruiting or acquisitions? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's, it's not just, will it be worth it financially, but is it, is it worth it altogether? Many advisors have the perception that if I'm not an enterprise builder, I'm not looking to grow through recruitment and acquisition, that I just shouldn't be independent. It's not worth it. I don't think that's necessarily true because there's a ton of really valid reasons why someone would want to be independent that fall outside of the financial and out of the inorganic growth. So for example, someone might just want to have full control and agency over their business life. And even if they're not looking to, to grow, they value their autonomy. They value owning their own equity. They value having their own brand. They value customizing technology. So while 
the math for independence definitely becomes more compelling if you are aspirational about recruiting and acquiring. It still makes a ton of sense. And even I'm thinking of an advisor I know well who has grown a practice over a billion in assets, who has zero interest in recruiting and acquiring, but has almost doubled their business organically by going independent. So the math definitely makes sense for him. And he's just focused on the organic opportunities in front of him. And maybe he'll look to recruit or acquire in the future, but he's more than made up financially for going independent just by his own growth. And recruitment and acquisition, it's a lot of work, it's risky, and it's distracting. So there is something to be said about keeping things simple. And if your firm is still growing at a rate that you're comfortable with and you have the right capabilities, then sometimes it's right to stick to your knitting and not get distracted by the bright, shiny objects and just focus on what you're really good at. Yeah. Lewis, you know, thanks so much for joining me today. I realize what a juicy and important topic this is because whether you are already the principal of an independent firm and considering putting your toe in the inorganic growth waters, or you are a captive employee advisor at a wirehouse or otherwise and thinking about breaking away and going independent, one of the things you should be thinking about is, is there interest in growing by acquisition or recruitment? And if so, why and what impact does it have and how can you be successful? So thank you a lot for joining me today. We'll probably talk more about this in an upcoming episode. Absolutely. Thank you. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note, that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, I'd be grateful if you gave the show a star rating and review. That will let other advisors know if it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.